Let's begin by reading our passage. Let's read from Genesis 1, 28 to 31. Last week, we spent a fair amount of time looking at this business of God's blessing on the first man and first woman. Struggling to understand just what that word, Bayrock, means, or at least how it's being used here. <clears throat> Upon rereading the passage a few more times since, I, I came away with the image of my in my mind of a wedding ceremony. A modern religious ceremony, marriage ceremony, includes someone, a pastor, an elder, a priest, in a sense standing in for God to bless this union of the man and woman. In my mind, I see a holy God, Adam and Eve's pastor. That was the role he was taking on earth for them. Standing before the couple, joining them together in wedlock as he bestows his blessing upon them to go forth to have babies and fill the earth and establish man's dominance over all lower creatures that share it. In our previous class on the last things, we began that study looking at the sequence of dispensations that proceed from creation through to the eternal state. Traditionally, there's about seven or eight dispensations, but numbers vary. Here in verse 28, we have the inauguration of the short-lived first dispensation of innocence. Innocence didn't last long on this earth. It began with the blessing of their Creator bestowed upon the sinless first couple. It wouldn't last long. Man's fall would inaugurate the next dispensation. We really don't, parenthetically, we really don't know the time span there, do we? <laughs> we? We tend to think, oh, it happened right away. Like the next morning they get up and Eve says, hey, look at that, an apple. Uh, that We don't know. It could have been years. <laughs> so let's look at verses 29 to 30. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, 
And every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given given every green plant for food. And it was so. In creation's pristine, sinless state, animals were not killed for food. Man and beast were given the fruit of the trees and the green plants for food. The death of living things did not exist. Now remember, biblically, living things means, and our our text brings it out, uh, and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. Biblically, the definition for a living thing is one that breathes in and out. Uh, green plants we call living, but biblically they're not. It's hard for us to imagine such a world. For we have all of us been born into and been raised in from birth in a world permeated with death. It just drips with it. Animals die, either from old age, accident, killed, and consumed by other animals, or slaughtered by man for food. Grandparents die. Parents die. Sadly, even children die. Every one of us knows that there will come a day when we die. We get a pretty clear picture of what a holy God thinks of death near the end of all things in the Revelation. Turn please to Revelation 20. The Apocalypse. Revelation 20, and let's read verses 13 to 15, just after the great white throne judgment. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That was not the world as first created. That picture from Revelation is one of just finally ridding the earth of all death and sin. Death did not exist on earth until after the fall. And back to Genesis. Genesis 3. The first thing we note after that fateful day is the death of innocence. Genesis 3, beginning with verse 7. And the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened. 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Get that? They're hiding behind the trees from their pastor. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Next, Although man will remain vegetarian, in God's response to their shame, we see the first death of an animal at the hand of Yahweh Himself. Look at verse 21, same chapter. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin, that is, hide, the hides of an animal, for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. There will now be death on earth. But man will remain vegetarian until God makes his covenant with Noah after the flood. Chapter 9. Genesis 9, verse 2. Now let's start with one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast. Let me press pause there. Get that? Before, man and the animals had the same diet. Nobody feared anybody. Nobody feared the other. Now after the fall and after the flood, not only is there death, but there's fear. The animals now fear man because man will eat them. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give all to you. So, that was, that will be done with God's blessings. It's His, his idea, His command. But isn't it sad now that there's fear? Not only is there death, there's fear. It reminds me of when Jesus is asked about divorce and he says, well, Moses had to do that because of you. It isn't God's idea. Back to chapter 1. Yes, interject. It's always wise to let an elder interject. It's, it's, it's politically wise. <laughs> um, I always found it interesting when God talks to them about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That, hey, but you're not to eat from that. In the garden. You're not to eat from anything you do, you will surely die. But as you said, they didn't have any point of reference for die. What, what did that mean? Hmm, interesting. So, By making their clothing for them. Yeah. But I mean, I, clearly, but I mean, before that, what did those words mean to them when God spoke that? 
Good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Anyway, I just always find that interesting. Don't know what that means. Probably nothing. That's something between the lines. There's, that's where the neat stuff is between the lines. Oh, they knew. Yeah, they they knew something was different. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have to. No one had to tell him to hide from God, because he was filled with shame. First five where? No, he's he's talking to men. He's, he's talking to Noah. Well, I want you to answer. Uh, uh, what's your name? Yeah, Al. I want you to answer, but I want to address something first. This type. Wait a minute. I'm the teacher. <laughs> yeah, see what that. I think we'll go back to Rose. Uh, I had more gravitas at behind the podium. That was that's the ticket. Yeah. Now I can't shut them up. This. The, I think what it's referring. Al will, will correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the beginning of sacrifices. The animals, it's their blood. And if it weren't for the animals' blood, then every firstborn male would have to be killed. So, in other words, blood, he requires blood now. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and along with that, I think it goes to, because as you get into the law and you get into everything, there, there, there comes in there where they talk about, and if an animal gores somebody or kills somebody, their blood will be required. You kill the animal. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of verses that refer to that. So, I mean, I've always took it, and I, I think some of the notes reflect that. That, um, yeah, now even even animals are going to be accountable in some sense. I don't know what that means again, but they are going to be responsible for something. But at this point, with before we're, I always like that. That's what happened in my last class. You'd read verses and then somebody would raise their hand with a question about the next verse. Oh, well, I, we didn't read that. Get away. Uh, I don't know anything about that verse. <laughs> uh, but, but before we dig into the details, which we will one day get to chapter 9, uh, yeah, but what breaks your heart is look at what's happening because they now they're wise now they ate from the tree of knowledge and yeah yeah they got exactly what that tree was all about they know now all about sin death pain suffering people are idiots 
Back to chapter 1. Good question. Don't miss how verse 29 begins. Behold, I have given to you. As the Brown Drivers Briggs Hebrew lexicon, write that down, there'll be a test, explains, lo, or behold, introduces clauses giving prediction, involving prediction, or with reference to the past or present, it points generally to some truth either newly asserted or newly recognized. In other words, God is saying here, pay attention. This is important. Behold. And Leupold explains the strength behind I have given. He writes, the verb translated I have given Nathati stands in the perfect tense, the usual construction in ordinances or abiding decrees. The perfect tense gives the impression of a rule firmly fixed and already unwavering. So this is a strong, it isn't, you know, they're churchy words. We've grown up with them since Sunday school. And we go, Lo, behold, I have, and we say, yeah, 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 get to the good part. This is God saying, behold. This is important. Way back on day three, God created everything man and the beasts would need for food. As he had from the earliest moments of day one, God has assembled all the pieces of his creation for the benefit, the sustenance, the edification of humankind. And as to the food, we should keep in mind that just as man was different before the fall, so was the earth. And those things growing from it. I doubt that we can imagine, even in our wildest dreams, the extravagant, exotic bounty the Lord fashioned for the first couple. I don't think we have any idea what Eden looked like. Surely that with which we are familiar and think to be wonderful is but a mere shadow of what was initially supplied in Eden. One of the advantages, this is what happens when I lean back in my chair and think. One of the advantages, I, I looked out the window and I saw winter without the beauty of snow, which isn't, isn't very pretty. One of the advantages we have living in a part of the world with seasonal change is that every year we're offered an illustration of the difference between Eden and the world after the fall. In the spring, the land bursts forth with burgeoning life and as we pass into the summer, we're surrounded by a landscape bursting with life. It even smells good. Lilacs. Lilies of the valley. The deciduous trees are in full leaf, green and pleasantly shaped. They're beautiful. But come late autumn and early winter, the green land has become an ugly, brown, 
and the trees have degenerated into little more than stark bony skeletons, appearing, at least, utterly dead, lifeless. And the contrast is a perfect illustration of the world as God made it and the world after the fall. He wanted it to be like spring. Man made it. Winter. Verse 30 reiterates the giving of the trees and plants for food, this time for the beasts of the earth at all. Since the animals do not at this point prey upon each other, Leupold may be correct when he, said, when he writes, rapacious and ferocious wild beasts did not yet exist. I'm not sure I agree with that. It could also be true that these wild beasts were originally created herbivores, only to become carnivores, like man, after the fall or after the flood for man. Just as Noah and his family, man changed after the fall, after the flood, and I can imagine animals changed. We know that the fall permeates man, beast, the earth. The earth groans from it, looking for the day. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This verse seems repetitious at first glance. We think, yeah, yeah, we've read that before, but, but not so. Three words set this sixth day of creation apart from the foregoing. Previously, after steps in his creation, it would be stated that God saw that it was good. Now the declaration is not just repeated, but is emphasized first with behold, and the addition of the adjective very. Here God declares everything he has just made very good. Also, previously the time marks would be, for example, a fourth day, a fifth day day. Now the definite article is added, the sixth day. Thus in a number of ways the events of this day are marked as the closing creative bookend to the entire week. God declares that everything lying before him has just been created perfectly, just as he intended, absolutely perfect without a trace of evil. I looked again, by the way, at the serpent. And it doesn't say it was evil. It says he was smart. He was clever. So this is a world as God wants it, sufficiently clean for him to visit. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a place he can visit even in His holiness. And in time, after it's been recreated to its original pristine state, a world in which He's willing to dwell for eternity. Revelation 20, 21, verse 3. 
And now we are presented with one of the clumsiest chapter breaks in all of God's Word. I don't know which brilliant scholar is responsible for it, but he ought to have been shot. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What are three verses? Put them where they belong. Give me a break. Let's read it that way. Let's read Genesis 1, 31 to 2, verse 3. In verse 1, we have the official conclusion of God's creative pageant. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. We tend to read completed. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. We tend to read completed as finished, don't we? I finished that task yesterday. Did you take out the garbage? I took out the garbage, Mom. I finished it. Which is indeed how this word kala can be translated as it is in the ESV and King James versions. But it can also include the idea to be complete. Even perfected. So at this point, the end of the sixth day, God was not just done with His work. He was finished with a perfectly complete new task. Nothing more needed to be added. The work required no low tweaking, no fine-tuning to make it a little bit better. It was done, it was finished, it was perfect. Unlike when we finish our tasks, we often have to come back and improve something. It was done, and done perfectly. An echo of very good in verse 31. And verse 1 as a whole speaks to this. Everything in God's creation was completed as intended. The heavens, Shemaim, the immediate atmosphere enveloping the earth and the vast universe, space above that. The earth, Eretz, this globe we call home for now. And all their hosts, Tzavah. It's a, a military term used to describe those stars and planets populating space, including the hosts of Earth, our sun and moon. Genesis 1, 14 to 15. Turn, please, to Deuteronomy 4. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 4. where this word, Savah, is used in a similar way. Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. 
Things that the Lord, your God, has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. She read the right verse. Now, some posit that this can include or even refer specifically to angels. But there's been no mention in the preceding creation narrative of the creation of angels. So, it, it can't be referring to that. There are other passages where the same word, Savah, uh, does refer to angels. For example, Psalm 148, verse 2. But there's no basis for believing it does so here. Now, it's talking about the objects populating the universe. The second heaven, stars, planets, etc. Verse 2. Right away we see that we may have a problem in verse 2. Verse 1 states that prior to day 7, the creation process was completed at the end of day 6. Yet, in about half of our versions, verse 2 begins, and on the seventh day, God completed His work. So those paying attention might say, well now, wait a minute, which is it? Day 6 or day 7? Compounding the confusion, at least on the surface, verse 2 continues with, quote, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. The more literal translation, as in the LSB, ESV, and King James versions, is on the seventh day. That is a correct literal translation. The not inaccurate, but less literal translation, as in the NIVs, and sadly, NASB, is by the seventh day. Now, that's okay. It's just not a literal translation, but that is kind of the idea. I'll not bore you with the explanatory details found in the original Hebrew, since I don't understand most of them myself. But the bottom line is that the verb completed or finished is in the PL stem. See, I've already told you too. I, I, I love Barb looks at me like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> the PL stem, which is sometimes in the declarative sense, which supports Leupold's translation of verse 2. And on the seventh day, God declared his work on which he was engaged finished. And he desisted on the seventh day from all the work on which he had been engaged. So that makes sense. The word is on the seventh day, but, but what happened on the seventh day is God declared his work done. That track? Six days. Well, but what we refer to that whole is this, <coughs> we believe in the seven day creation, uh, and that the resting is part of the the founding work, uh, the founding um, establishment of the earth, that the, the, the resting that God did was all part of that. So there's there's seven days 
six days he does something, the seventh day he rested, but it's all, that's one unit. I think we're chewing on semantics here. Um, you're correct about what happens on the seventh day. It is a foundational thing that he does, which we're going to get to. That resting. But I think it's stretching it to say that that was part of creation. Creation, the creation of the universe took place in six days. And I, I like the, dif- the division there because he was not continuing to create. He was establishing something, but he wasn't creating something from nothing. Yes. I'm done. Complete, complete until I rested. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Otherwise, you have to wonder, well, what what does that mean then? I mean, we we say in verse 32, I'm sorry, that that we've completed everything, and then on the seventh day we complete it. No. I, I was I was with you until you said that. Uh, if it's having completed, I then rested. That's that makes sense. the The word is in the declarative sense, which means like just as as Leupold writes, on the seventh day, God declared that His work was completed. Now, we're splitting hairs. I want to move on, but some of what you're saying is correct. It's, it's really just the way you look at it. I like to divide the two. Uh, but I think Leupold's translation helps us understand how the word is being used. But this isn't just a matter of getting the words right. It's important for us to know that day seven was different from the six previous days. And this gets to what you were saying, uh, whatever your name is. <laughs> I know things are start start to fall apart in your 70s. But it's really irritating that I can look at somebody who I've known for years and not remember their name. (sighs) I know, Barb, you say it's going to get worse, and I have that to look forward to. (sighs) This is what Greg was getting to. It's special because it established something very important God chose to communicate to His people as expressed clearly in verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it He rested from all His work which God had created in making it. Once again, God bestows a blessing, this time on a day, the seventh day of the week. More than that, He sanctified the day He set it apart as a holy, consecrated day. And he did this by resting on this day. The Hebrew is Shabbat, 
which means at its root to cease, to desist. That's the first meaning of this word. It doesn't mean go to church. It means stop. It also doesn't mean I'm tired. Of what I was doing. That's right. See, now he stole my thunder. There's always, there's always a dentist in the room stealing my thunder. I can be. Yes. 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 I've lost control again. Yes, and he's gone now. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming, Merrill. I'm coming. Yeah, I know that hurts. This established not. I'm, I'm, I'm plowing ahead. This established not specifically the Jewish Sabbath, but the creation. Sabbath, which set the pattern, the concept, for that which would be instituted in the Ten Commandments for Israel's Sabbath. We're not going to go there. I was going to read that, but we're not going to. The Sabbath is not only important to Jews, but to Christians as well, just in a different way. Now, forget that I'm losing my mind and pay attention. Followers of Christ are not commanded to rest every seventh day. Because for us, the Sabbath rest has been fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews 4, verses 9 to 11. And as David Guzik points out, Christians do not lose the Sabbath. Every day is a day of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every day is specially set apart to God. Nonetheless, There is something to be said for the setting aside of one day a week for devotion, for study, for worship, for contemplation. We're commanded to do that. It doesn't say rest every seventh day. We're not commanded to rest. For contemplation of things holy with fellow believers, which is what we're doing right now as well as for physical cessation of one's work. Yet for us, the practice of resting from work on our Sabbath, Sunday, is only one of personal conviction. It is for me, personally. I remember some Greg uh, Rulak wanted me to help him. I was going to put in a toilet for him. And he wanted me to come come by and have Sunday dinner with us, and then we'll do it in the afternoon. I said, no. No, on Sundays I rest. I don't do work like that. But it's just personal conviction. We're not commanded. Romans 14, 5 is a, is a good verse in regards to that. Do you have it? No, but I can look it up. No, let's move on. But, but Romans, Romans 14, 5. Romans 14, 5. I want to finish by pointing out two important truths about Sabbath. God did not rest because he was weary, as has been pointed out. 
He rested to show his creating work was done, to give a pattern to man regarding the structure of time in seven-day weeks, and to give an example of the blessing of rest to man on the seventh day. That's David Guzik. As we were reminded recently in Pastor Jeremy's study of the Gospel of John, the Sabbath instituted by God is ultimately for man. God and his Son never stop working. Even on the Sabbath, John 5, verses 16 to 17. And so ends the first account of God's creation of the universe. I had a nice quote from Leupold, but it'll take too long, and I'm maybe I'll work it into the next session. In two weeks, next session is two weeks, we'll begin God's second account of his creation, chapter 2. Our Father God, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for this time of discussion. Thank you for the blessing, the true blessing of holding your word in our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.